Welcome to today's MarTech Zones interview. Uh, on today's show, we have a very special guest. We have Hunter Hastings. Uh, Hunter is a member of the Mises Institute. He's a business consultant uh, and co-chair of the Rescue California Educational Foundation. He's also the host of a massive podcast, Economics for Entrepreneurs. Uh, and you can find his writings on entrepreneurship at hunterhastings.com. This is MarTech Interviews, a podcast from DK New Media, publishers of MarTech, the leading publication for sales and marketing professionals to research, discover, and learn how technology is driving business results. Your host is Douglas Carr. Uh, welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, on today's show, I have uh, a great guest, Hunter Hastings, who I have slowly gotten to know over the last year. So it's been a, uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, someone with your caliber. I think we met through Mark Schaefer, uh, yep. also another friend, uh, incredible guy. And um, during our conversations with Hunter, I just absolutely loved his optimism over this entire, you know, kind of economic debacle. And uh, as with other entrepreneurs and other business people and other marketers, I have had incredibly sleepless nights and, <laughs> and concern and everything else. And I just found it really uh, calming to speak to Hunter because uh, in his experience, he has seen um, and studied and, uh, and, and understands the elasticity of our economies. And, uh, and with that, Hunter, maybe, maybe I should ask you to introduce yourself. You're probably the best person to do that. Okay. Well, thanks for the invitation, Doug. I appreciate it very much. You've been a, a great help to me and the Institute and everything that we're trying to do. So thank you. Absolutely. My professional track has always been marketing. I, I started work in corporate marketing, uh, was in several corporate marketing positions up to the CMO level, then started a consultancy uh, to help other companies with marketing. And then when that particular career phase was over, I, I uh, got into venture capital. I've been a general partner in a seed stage venture capital fund. And so I see lots and lots of different businesses. Uh, we think of businesses from a VC perspective as a portfolio. Some win, some don't win. And, and it's necessary to try to analyze and understand that. And then my uh, academic track and study track is economics. And that's what the Mises Institute is all about. It's an economic think tank, if you wish. And we try to understand exactly those things. What makes business succeed and, and businesses not succeed? And the, the big context, Doug, is that you get to understand that the economy is dynamic. It's always changing. And entrepreneurs play a special role in that businesses and medium businesses and, and uh, individual contractors. They all play a special role in this dynamic economy. And the entrepreneurs actually drive it. They're the ones coming up with the new ideas and the new investments and the firms. Those firms are all aimed at helping customers, helping improve customers' lives and improve customers' businesses. It's all a grand positive. And within those dynamics, change can be burdensome at times, but we look at it as positive change. And when something like the pandemic comes along, it's not so much that the pandemic has changed 
the economic world. It's that the conditions that government and local authority and so on like that are imposing on people that there is the change. But you've got to understand that, not protest it, but hey, what does that mean for the future? How can I adapt? What are the new business opportunities that can be started I, I, on Twitter that if you look at it, more great new businesses are started in economic depressions and downs than in positive times because the others are looking for new ideas and new opportunities and those come from change. So yeah, we take a very optimistic point of view about it's interesting. It's it's almost as if, uh, you know, if you, if, if you dug a hole in your yard and it started to rain, you know, something's going to come and fill up that hole again, mm-hmm. right? It's it's very much that's what we're seeing right now is uh, I, I, I do remain optimistic as far as uh, as far as the economy is concerned. And from a marketing standpoint, uh, what's been really advantageous, I guess, to our industry is that we have been pushing people to adopt digital and to transform and to take advantage of digital. And, and to your point, because of uh, government lockdowns and because of precautions taken for the pandemic, it actually accelerated that behavior, you know, beyond the imagination. Uh, you know, it, it, where I know um, I've read overseas, you know, that like in, in, uh, in Japan, you know, they've been using digital payments forever. In China, digital payments forever. In the United States, we were still walking around with cash and we were still walking around with plastic and stuff. And well, now in this touchless environment, now everybody's utilizing online and touchless and starting to use their phone for payments. And so where we were trying to pull people to adoption before, now now we just kind of threw them into it (laughs) and made them adjust with the behavior, right? Well, that's a, that's a great point, Doug. Digitization creates crazy opportunities for entrepreneurs. It's unlimited. And the rate of change is exponential. Uh, one of my guests on the, the podcast coming up is a fellow called Jeff Booth, who uses the analogy that uh, to think of exponential, think about a piece of paper, a narrow piece of paper, fold it 50 times, how far does it reach? And the answer is it reaches the sun. Nobody gets that. Nobody gets that right. But it's it's exponential change. Now we haven't reached the sun yet, but each additional fold, if you want to follow the analogy, gets us a whole lot further. And that's what's happening with with digitization. And the other point to make there is it's it's not just one uh, piece of digitization or new technology. It's the combination of them. So, for example, if you're rethinking education, instead of going to those old buildings with with teachers you can only find there and you've got to go to lectures and you've got to rent a dorm room and and those kinds of things. When education goes online, it combines all kinds of technologies, internet technology and streaming and digital video, digital audio and all kinds of ways to uh, to interact. Access is free. It's free from anywhere in the world. It's free from uh, any time of day. And the experience is entirely different. And once we add VR to that, it's going to be uh, qualitatively, qualitatively different again. So it's the combination of those technologies that creates incredible new experiences for, for customers. And for entrepreneurs, you can download all of those technologies from the internet. It's not that they're not accessible. It's that 
you are just challenged with what's a new way to combine these existing technologies and keep them updated and, and keep them refreshed at the speed at which things are changing. But the opportunities are just crazy abundant. There's no, no limit to them. That's, that's one of the reasons why it's, uh, it's exciting to be in this day and age and be a marketer and entrepreneur. It absolutely is. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, some of the conversations that I'm having with businesses and, and also even with my business partners is, uh, it almost sounds like a terrible thing to say, but you know, what is changing that we can capitalize on with, mm -hmm. with this? And it's survival, right? That's just survival. It's, it's that if, if, if this is maintained, if this behavior is maintained in our society uh, and mandated and on, pandemics are going to happen again, um, you know, how are we going to do business different so that we can not only survive, but thrive through this? And, and so we've had to make you know, some of those dramatic changes and pivots to how we speak about our company and the capabilities that we can provide people. Is, are the companies that are frozen, the ones that are in danger, you know, is it the, is it the people that are just saying, well, I hope this is over next week. I hope this is over in a couple of weeks. You know, is that where the danger lies in a situation like this? Yes. You used a good word there, Doug, frozen. And so in this, this uh, concept of dynamic change, the, the right reaction is to respond to that change in a positive way. If possible, imagine the future. You can't predict it, but you can possibly imagine it and think what things might be like in six weeks' time or six months' time or the next pandemic or whatever it is. And the method of response, the, the economists use the word recombining assets. So the stuff still exists, right? You may have to sell it for 10 cents on the dollar, but someone's going to take it and they're going to recombine it with something else and start a new business. Um, so value looks different in the future and you've got to think about what that is. And the, this combination of technologies helps you think about, about value in a different way. And it's, it's this combination. Everybody talks about Elon Musk. He's combined technologies like, like battery technology and software and AI and has created a company that's in bigger market capitalization than, than General Motors. Now, he didn't look at today because when he started doing this, battery technology was not fully enough developed and AI hadn't developed to the point where he can use it to automate driving and things like that. He looked at the future. I don't know how long his lens was, two years or five years or 10 years, um, but he imagines the future. And then you make your adaptations as you go along based on what kind of feedback that you get. So this concept that we, we love about entrepreneurs is, they can imagine. It's uh, in the technical language, it's counterfactual. It doesn't exist yet, right? No one else has, has seen it. You're going to see it for yourself. So take your beliefs, imagine how they will be applied in the future, start working your way towards that, and then take the feedback from the marketplace, from people, from customers, and find out what happens. So maybe people won't eat at restaurants in the future. Maybe it's all delivery or maybe it's some other kind of experience that they, what experience will we like two years from now or after this pandemic? That's entrepreneur's imagination. And marketers are the best of that because they're, they're imagineers by definition. So turn the marketers loose. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. I love, well, I love hearing that as a marketer. So. <laughs> 
but it, but I but I agree with that. Now we're talking about entrepreneurship uh, quite a bit here, uh, but it is if you're in a in a company that has a sustained business model that's been profitable, you know, for a very long time. How how do you advise business leaders to to adjust that culture internal and to kind of free up that thinking so that they can they can pivot or or make the changes necessary to survive? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge for established businesses, especially if they've got a lot of structure. Structure gets in the way of being responsive to the marketplace. So if that's uh, hierarchy and bureaucracy and, and all of that, uh, you know, scientific data measurement and so on, it's really, really hard to respond. So you've got to look at your business and make sure it's on the human side. It understands people, it understands their, their hopes and desires and their needs, and, and you try and find ways to respond to that. Often you've got to either turn organization upside down so that the people closest to the customer, closest to the market are the ones feeding back the information. Hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. This is what the market needs. And then you've got to find ways inside the, the corporation in R&D or in, in uh, other forms of, of innovative processes to get back to the market quickly. And you know, the whole lean process and, and those kinds of things are really pretty good at that. Do it quickly get a new product out there, get a new service out there, see what happens, take the feedback and, and keep changing. So you've got to get rid of the barriers to responsiveness that exist in, in structure and in hierarchy. And you've got to get rid of silos. That's the other thing that happens as business gets bigger. You know, the, the marketing silo is separate from the sales silo, which is separate from R&D and is separate from accounting and HR. Silos are the other thing that, that gets in the way because the information, the data, the experience can't filter through all the places in the, in the corporation. One of the expressions I love, it's been around for a long time, but everybody does marketing. It's the job of everybody in the corporation to be listening to the marketplace, repurposing that information into innovation, and then communicating it back out. Hey, we heard you. We listened to you. Here's, here's what we did. What do you think? Um, so, Structure is the biggest problem to that, I think. And it, you, know, you can develop processes to respond to the marketplace, but it's really not a process, it's organic. It's this information filtering through to everybody, being processed by everybody, and then that emerges back into the marketplace's innovation. So at least get rid of structure. Well, and, and we're living in no better time to listen, right? We have mm -hmm. all the data in the world to absolutely listen and understand. And I, I love that because I, I think I watch organizations sometimes that they have a fantastic sales team and they have a fantastic marketing team, uh, but maybe they're falling apart on the customer service side of the equation. And that customer service side is destroying all of the progress of sales and marketing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and then companies realize, wait a second, we've got to keep this balanced and we've got to fix all these pieces in order for things to work well. And so I, I, I think that's, that's fantastic. So the first one, you know, big takeaway there for me is absolutely listen and put yourself in the perspective of the customer and what the customer, what the problem is, right. And what they need. Um, and then work back from there, which is counterintuitive for a huge organization. Yeah, it is. The, this idea of putting the customer first, the customer's in charge, the customer's in first place, 
it's easy to say, but it's, it's, it's very hard to do. I'll tell you another thing that concerns me a little bit, Doug, in this era of digitization is we tend to be moving towards collecting behavioral data and then trying to induce how people feel. So we know what they click, they know what they buy. Uh, we have a phenomenon called engagement, which is kind of mechanically developed, right? Um, there's a little bit of communication in it, but perhaps not enough. And like our mutual friend Mark Schaefer says, we're used, losing the humanism of, of that a little bit because what counts is how people feel. What's, what do they feel about the experience? It's, it's emotional, uh, it can be inconsistent, it depends what day they feel, uh, it can be idiosyncratic, and it's a bit hard to collect that through just mechanical um, data collection on, on the internet and on your site and so on. So you've got to find ways to collect that emotional kind of data. And the best way to do it is one-on-one, -on -one. it's talk to people. So whoever's out there in your organization talking to people, talking to customers, you know, sometimes it can be done through a chat window, but even better is, is in-person conversations. And this whole area of data aggregation, you know, I've got to have a sample of a thousand people to get a statistically meaningful result. Um, that's just wrong. You're better at getting deep, rich, personal information one-on-one. -on -one. And yeah, you can accumulate it over time. You know, you get 10 interviews, you've got a pattern, but definitely find ways to get that emotional feedback, not just the behavior feedback. Yeah. Two, two things there. You know, one is engagement. I always joke with people that if I said I was engaged to my girlfriend because she, you know, said hello to me, <laughs> she might yeah. laugh a little bit. And so, you know, I always, I always ask people, well, if you can create a dotted line and actually connect the dots between what people did and whether it impacted your business, that's, mm -hmm. that's engagement, you know, yeah. but, but if you can't connect the dots, uh, you know, more retweets or more likes or more this, if that doesn't equate to actual business results, it's not engagement at all. It's just activity. Um, right. You know, and uh, the, the second piece of that, that I, that I really liked that you said um, was, was speaking to a personal level, because I agree with you. Sometimes the statistics and sometimes the aggregate is really just the lowest common denominator, isn't mm -hmm. it? And, and so the outliers like an Elon Musk, you know, um, I, you know, I don't know that anybody dreamed that we needed a battery to run a house, you know, and, uh, and, and, and here he is inventing a technology that could literally transform the power grid that way. And, uh, and so I, I do think that that's, that's a, a absolutely critical conversation is are, are we, are we listening to aggregate and just doing the least common denominator? Because there's always, I think there's always a percentage of people that are negative as well. Oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Yeah. And entrepreneurship is the people that are the opposite that are saying, maybe this will work. Maybe this will work. Maybe there's a chance. Yeah. Well, just to give an example of what you said about, about Elon Musk and a battery for a house, the way I would think about that from an emotional data standpoint is if you talk to people, They'll say, I hate the electricity company. I hate yeah. my bills. I hate the power cuts. I hate everything about being attached to the grid and the uncertainty it brings. So 
I think Elon Musk, whether deliberately or just uh, through his own brilliance, saw that emotion, I hate my electricity company, and he invented the house battery. So that's a kind of example of connecting emotional data to actual innovation. Uh, that's fantastic. Now, uh, a large companies like that, um, I kind of see that they did Two, they do two things sometimes is sometimes they try to stoke innovation or change through acquisition, right? If they, if, if mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, and unfortunately sometimes there's a graveyard that comes along with that. <laughs> I think someone yeah. has a great site up. I forget what it's called. Uh, it's, it's like the Google graveyard and it's all the amazing companies that they've bought and then extinguished. <laughs> and while Google does fantastic things, it's unfortunate that sometimes, you know, some innovation, you know, goes by the wayside there. But the other one is, and I saw this firsthand when I worked uh, in the early days of Exact Target, was we really skyrocketed when leadership always worked around a barrier. And, and mm -hmm. what I saw was that sometimes there was an embedded development team that said, we can't do it, it's impossible or whatever. And what leadership did was they brought in a different group. And I think you, you said R&D. That's a perfect yeah. example, mm -hmm. right? And that's that, okay, if you hit a roadblock here, go find another path, right? Right. I, just one point on your mergers and acquisitions, Doug. I wouldn't worry too much about that because this principle of the assets always get reused, right? They don't, they don't right. get reused. Sometimes a company will try to acquire another one. Sometimes something good comes out of it. Something, sometimes it doesn't work. So the assets then get resold again. And it might take a little bit of time, but people make mistakes. They don't do it intentionally. And so I wouldn't worry too much about that. Sure, but sure. Your, your, your other point, I think, speaks to um, agile. You know, the, one of the great things that came out of, of the digital world, and it's, it's, it's software writers and people like you and me who, who embrace technology. They invented this process of agile, which is about getting over hurdles. It's, but it's small teams with different kinds of, of expertise and knowledge on them. And they set one goal for a sprint and they go for it and they solve it. As you say, if they can't, they'll put together another team and go at it from another direction. But it's not a big heavy wheel being rolled uphill. It's a bunch of smart people working together, collaborating. Each one of them's got a specialty. They set the goal, they sprint towards it, and they get there. Or they don't, and they, they'll try again in, in another direction. But it's just speed and adaptiveness and, and the positive attitude of, of, I can do this. I think one of the great things that um, the software community in general, the digital community, the digital natives has brought to us is this idea of agile. And it's so different than the traditional, you know, process-based, structure-based kind of, of management. You know, we'll devote a billion dollars in, in the next five years to this, this uh, innovation that we're planning. We can't plan innovations. And when you have agile teams working on them, you'll find a way. Yeah, I agree. And I almost feel as this, uh, you know, back, back in the day, I'm old. So back in the day, we even did, I'm five, older, <laughs> we did five and 10 year planning, right? Yeah. We, we did decade planning and we had massive, to your point, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment purchases and, mm -hmm. and everything else. And, uh, the scary part of it, um, was the risk was greater uh, by going long term right. like that, and agile 
I really feel like has a, has a reduced risk. You fail quicker, but you mm-hmm. fail smaller and you learn quicker. And then you, you know, you keep adapting and, and it's not that you don't ultimately make the same massive investment. Um, but it seems to be that you can, you can really redirect the direction as you're going to hone in on profitability or better business results or customer, you know, experience or everything that you need for the business to survive and, and thrive. You're exactly right. And the, the era of five-year and 10-year plans, even one-year plans is, is over. And it's this agile responsiveness with a common goal. So you figure out where are we all going here? And that's revisable, but it's, it's, it's generally applicable across multiple teams. And, you know, one of the standards in, in software building is the daily stand-up, right? At least it used to be in, in my yep. day. Maybe, maybe Still it's So you change every day. You look at your feature list and you, you move it up and down. And the reason for that is, Doug, that the customer is doing the same thing. The customer has a, a list of values or a list of goals or a list of, of uh, things that they're aiming for, and it changes every day. And so... On the production side, the entrepreneurial side, you've got to do the same thing. And it's this wonderful dance and it requires the information to go back and forth. So you've you've got to have a speed of information and an information flow that can keep up with that speed of change. And then you've got to use it in this this agile manner. So I love the way that that software teams and the, the companies of today run their companies. And it's not, quote, management. It's this agile responsiveness to the marketplace. You don't manage it. You, you create the conditions under which it can happen. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I love, I, I, I always tell the marketers that we're working with that um, one is the first cultural changes you have to be um, willing to change. You have to almost mm-hmm. look forward to it because it's not going to ever stop. Um, if you're the kind of person that has to check 10 boxes and get things done, uh, you're going to you're going to suffer, you know, because the 10 things will change every single week based on, uh, on the response. And so I just tell people that I love agile as well, because we work from priorities and backlog priorities, backlog, and we're always doing that dance. Like you said, that, that we're reprioritizing based on resources and timelines and budget. Um, but we always have this backlog that we can, you know, sneak stuff in and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and get something in that we were looking forward to doing. So I, that, that, that's, uh, I love, I, I, I've never, I guess I've never, I've always thought about it from a developer standpoint and I've always thought about it from a marketing standpoint. Um, but from an organizational standpoint, you're absolutely right. Entire leadership really has to kind of conform to this new, you know, um, agile, you know, means of doing business. Right. I'm not even a big fan of the word leadership, Doug. I think that's been, been uh, manufactured by the business schools and, and people who write books. And it's this concept of the, you know, the CEO, the grand master, the department head who stands above everything and directs it and points the ship in the direction it's supposed to go. And I just don't think that's valid anymore. I think yeah. that the, the ship's going to decide which way it's going to go based on the, the, the currents in the sea. And, and I'm torturing my analogy now, but where the, where the customer has their light on the shore that you're, you're going towards. But there is no such thing as leadership. There, there might be coordination. 
Yes. There might even be inspiration. We might be able to inspire people that the goal is good and let's all go after it. But I just don't believe in leadership, which I think is a concept of, of uh, hierarchy and structure um, that we just don't need. And it, you know, the business schools have created it because A, they can sell it. It's a product that they can sell. And the people who get to be CEO love it because they get overcompensated relative to the people who are uh, actually making the change. I just don't think that will will think I think we think leadership that's not a concept that works anymore yeah i i I agree I always told people that the uh, you know the the best I ever performed in my job was with leaders that helped me remove roadblocks and identified the strengths that I had um, mm-hmm. the people that I failed under were people that were always trying to get me to improve this and that about myself. Well, you could be mm-hmm. a better manager if you just improved this or if you just did that. And it, it took me, you know, 40 years before I started telling people, um, yeah, I'm not going to be good at that. Uh, you're you're, you're going to set me up for failure if that's the direction that you want me to go. I'm, you know, and I, I liken it to a mechanic with a toolbox. You know, a mechanic, the beautiful thing about a mechanic is he's got an incredible array of tools, but he knows how to utilize every single one for his craft. Mm -hmm. And the better he gets at using the tools and the better he gets at, you know, identifying, you know, those and and then the better the entire, you know, repair is. And and I always always thought the same thing about leaders was that the the good ones got out of the way um, and, and really let me... Uh, or remove the roadblocks from from my success, and uh, and and the bad ones were always the micromanagers and the you know. Right, they're in they're in some kind of a power situation over you, or they're trying to indicate you or instruct you, which is is just as bad. And the the metaphor that's maybe better is orchestration. So you mentioned that uh, the a good leader might bring you some resources that you needed in order to. Uh, be better able to apply your own craft and orchestration. It's a bit kind of old fashioned, but it's a, a good idea. Uh, if orchestra come back after the pandemic, that the yeah. leader is not the best uh, player of the cello or the violin. Uh, it's the she or the he that stood orchestrating everybody to get them play at the same time in harmony, um, get through the piece, get to the end and so on. They, they don't lead, but they, they do help the members of the team work better together than would be the case without that orchestration. So it's some kind of analogy like that. But don't, you don't raise yourself above others and say, I'm the leader. You say, can I best help this fantastic team of great musicians get the job out of themselves and, and others? For the entertainment of the public. I mean, it's always the customer at the end who is the, the decider on what valuable. So I, I like that orchestration metaphor better than the ship metaphor. I do too. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful analogy. Well, uh, Hunter, I, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. Uh, tell people about your podcast and, and where to listen, because these are the types of conversations you're having with, with business leaders and thought leaders. Every, I, I said leaders. <laughs> with entrepreneurs and and business people every single day. Yes, the podcast is called Economics for Entrepreneurs. You can find it on the Apple podcast or you can or any of the other carriers, Spotify and Google Play and so on. 
or at our site, which is Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S. I know you had trouble pronouncing it. Everybody does. Yeah. Mises.org slash E4E pod. Um, but you'll find it on the Mises.org webpage. What we try to do, we try to build this bridge, Doug, between, between great economic theory and then putting in the, into practice. And so we try to rotate week by week uh, a great business school instructor or, or a professor or a theorist, and then real life entrepreneurs who uh, talk about their experience in, in making change and in building businesses and that kind of thing. So that's our uh, method. And uh, we've built up a pretty good listenership. And then on hunterhastings.com, you can find all of those um, podcasts. And then each week we try to provide free a downloadable tool that will help people put these ideas into practice. So that might be a, a process map or a how-to chart or a, um, some other kind of infographic. Uh, we think it's useful. We get good feedback. But we're also building another platform we're calling Economics for Business. Uh, it's I think you can go look at the, uh, the preliminary site now, but it's not fully ready. It's E-C-O-N, the letter four, the number four or other business, econ4business.com. And we're trying to, to consolidate all of these ideas and tools in one place, help entrepreneurs through the process of building a business. We're trying to build an ideas exchange so that they can talk to each other and then compare experiences. We're trying to find a way to put mentorship on there so old guys like you and me, Doug, can talk to younger folks and tell them the kind of experiences we've had and what to look out for and, and that kind of thing. So uh, take a look at econ4business.com and uh, the Economics for Entrepreneurs podcast. That, those are the two pillars of what we do right now. Fantastic. And we will, uh, for people listening, we will have those in our show links. So uh, just just go through the show links and we'll have all the links uh, to the podcast, to the Mises Institute, to hunterhastings.com, uh, uh, as well as Econ for Business. So Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a, this is a incredibly important uh, conversation and really puts things into perspective for people. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. And I hope this means that I have the opportunity to dip into your expertise from time to time as well, Doug, because that's, that's been really helpful to us. Thank I'm, you. I'm always here for you, sir. Good. Terrific. Thank you very much. Subscribe at martech.zone. Sponsorships and marketing services are available through dknewmedia.com.